0: Think we can keep this one below two hours?
1: I can try. (laughs) Listen, I'm never gonna promise below two hours because if there's one thing about me, it's that I'm gonna talk. So And I'm gonna read. That's true.
0: Welcome back to another episode of Is Fitz Happy? I'm Luke. And I'm Emma. And this week we're discussing chapter 27, Prisoners. We start out with Wintrow in a jail cell where he's been for four days.
1: Yes. And we find out that there is a five-day limit to how long you can stay in the cell before you are sold into slavery for your debts.
0: Yeah. And he is keeping quiet because the guy, the keeper that knocked him out beforehand when he was running away from the law keeps asking him like hey isn't there anybody who can buy this debt off of you and Wintro stays silent the whole time the first th- the first day he does explain that uh, he tried to talk about the priests he begged the keeper to go to the the temple of sa surely they would come and claim him But he declined, saying it would be a waste of time, that the priests did not meddle in civil affairs anymore. The satraps' prisoners were a civil affair, nothing at all to do with Sa or his worship. The satraps' prisoners, if not redeemed, became the satraps' slaves to be sold off to benefit the royal treasury. That would be a sad end to such a short life, had not the boysome family the keeper might contact? So obviously the keeper is looking for some handsome reward and payment for his dead slave. Cause obviously he blames Wintrow for killing this slave from the previous chapter.
1: Right. And in general, he thinks he's going to get a reward because a young boy like Wintrow, there's no way that he doesn't have family that would be worried about him. And mentions that maybe of like, how is his mother feeling? What doesn't he have older brothers? Something has to be mm-hmm. there. And doesn't really give up on that, which is really interesting that, I don't know, It's I feel like it's such a weird thought that this guy just continuously is like, wouldn't your mom be worried when, like, maybe Wintero is an orphan on the street? How do you know he has family, you know? But he doesn't give up. He's like, you know, I could go grab any family member if you want. Just tell me where they are.
0: He probably doesn't have the look of an orphan because he's been Fair. fed and well muscled from his journey.
1: Yeah, that's a good. He's in point. a
0: priest robe and says like I'm a priest kind of thing. So obviously he had a family to be sending him to a priesthood.
1: Yeah, and I guess it is said that people who send their kids to priesthood are usually pretty well off because they can afford to lose the labor. Yeah.
0: And also, he probably would make more money if there was a family to buy him. True. Instead of just going to the block and getting a portion or a cut.
1: Right. But it is interesting because we do get a look into kind of how far the priests have come away from Saw, I guess, in the teaching from the outer reaches of what Wintro knows. Yeah. They kind of wash their hands of this, which I guess we don't know if they would turn a blind eye to Wintro being in here. Because I'm sure usually it's just regular debtors that are asking to talk to the priests and not somebody who is training to be a priest. But maybe it doesn't really matter at this point And they are just seen as another corrupt organization. Who knows?
0: Yeah, maybe. What Wintrow is trying to do, though, by keeping silent is avoid being sent back to his father and the original captivity, the original um, slavery that he looks at on board the ship there says that was no solution at all, that surely something else would occur to him if he simply thought hard enough. And there was little else to do besides think, so for four days he's just kind of been sitting there, listening, thinking.
1: He does talk about how his sleep had no rest, though. The noises of the stalls invaded his dreams, populating them with dragons and serpents that argued and pleaded with human tongues. Awake, there was no one to talk to. So, I wanted to specifically point that out because I'm wondering is this another one of his like prophetic dreams? I don't know if that's the right way to phrase it, but we know that before, at the very beginning of this book, Wintrow was creating a stained glass art that was based off of the serpents and dragons. And so, and didn't consciously put. Those in there really. Right. And so obviously he has some sort of tie or connection to the serpents slash dragons. And so I'm wondering if this is do you think this was actually him skilling out and being around the serpents? Or is this some sort of prophecy dream? Is this a past dream where he's kind of like skill walking?
0: I really don't know. Obviously, we know Wintro is skilled, but I there's just not enough there for me to make any sort of guess because it's literally only the sentence that you read aloud. Right. So I I don't really have anything.
1: That's super fair. I, I just think it's interesting that Robin Hobb chose to put that in there because we know that in the future, the serpents and dragons will be begging for the help of humans to set them free. But there's no other sort of indicator that Wintro does have some sort of prophetic vision. We know right. that he is, yeah, like we said, he's definitely skilled and he definitely has skilled talents. He just doesn't ever seem to predict the future. <laughs> Very odd. I don't know.
0: So he's kind of describing his area around him that, you know, there are also people who have broken the law or debtors on either side of him. This isn't where slaves are kept. This is just places to put people until they, their debt is bought off before they turn into slaves.
1: Although there is a horse thief who is taken away to be hung or hanged. I don't know. That feels like the wrong tense, but it is right. I guess. I don't know.
0: So he's kind of glancing around and he can observe once again, since we're back in this market, he observes the attitudes And. And the whole environment that these people are in and really can see how this came about and how they're acting like they're acting, he says that a straw littered aisle fronted his cage and another row of similar stalls were on the opposite side of it. So not next to him, but across the way. And those were slaves in in those stalls there. Unruly and undesirable slaves, Map faces with scarred backs and legs, came and went from the leg irons. They were sold cheaply and used hard from what Wintro could see. They did not talk much, even to each other. Wintrow du- judged they had little left to talk about. Take all self-determination from a man's life, and all that is left from him to do is complain. This they did do, but in a dispirited way that indicated they expected no changes. They reminded Wintrow of chained and barking dogs. The sullen map faces across the way would be good for heavy labor and crude work in fields and orchards, but little more than that. This he had surmised from listening in on their talk. Most of the men and women stabled across from him had been slaves for years and fully expected to end their lives as slaves. Despite Wintrow's disgust with the concept of slavery, it was hard to feel sorry for some of them. Some had obviously become little more than beasts of labor, decrying their hard lot but no longer having the will to struggle against it. After watching them for a few days, he could understand why some worshippers of Sa could look at such slaves and believe they were so by Sa's will. It was truly hard to imagine them as free men and women with mates and children and homes and livelihoods. He did not think that they had been born without souls predestined to be slaves, but never before had he seen people so bereft of humanity's spiritual spark. Whenever he watched them, a cold slug of fear crawled slowly through his guts. How long would it take for him to become just like them? I thought that was a very interesting passage, because again, we have Wintros like our discussion at the end of last episode, where we had the the one... um, fan written email about Wintrow, how he was kind of a priest for himself in these early days here and how he's looking at it from a very narrow perspective. And I can see that peeking through on this passage and in this page. Coming from an inexperienced young boy slash young man like he is, who has been taught all of his life that Everyone is Saw's creation and they look for beauty at all times. Then he witnesses the horrors of slavery and be like, okay, they have accepted their lot. Obviously, you know, I can see why some people say that these people aren't of Saw.
1: It is very reminiscent of Ronica Vestrit's explanation of how slavery has kind of taken root in Bingtown where when the people being mistreated don't stand up for themselves, it kind of makes everybody around them feel as though maybe they do deserve the treatment. And I think that's so interesting to think about, obviously, I've never witnessed slavery firsthand. I've never had to see it in real life. So I don't know what that looks like in real life, but, It's really hard to kind of comprehend seeing human misery and then being like, well, maybe they deserve it because they don't seem to be fighting too hard against the chains. When in reality, what is there to do when they free themselves of the chains? You know, like they're already these people specifically are already map faces. So they're already marked as being slaves and not even just regular slave, unruly slaves. And. Even if they did manage to break free, where would they go to be able to have a good life? I'm sure even if they escape to somewhere like the Duchies or even Bingtown, I guess Bingtown wouldn't be safe, but if they escape to like the Duchies, say, I don't know that people are going to want to do business with them because the way that they look is going to be in- indicative that maybe they're not as trustworthy. And so it, it kind of is too late. And I don't know, it's just a, such a sad thing. And it's oddly callous of Wintro, who seems so empathetic normally, to yeah. say they kind of do feel like they deserve it. I don't I can't imagine them as regular human beings.
0: He's the the issue with this paragraph that I'm seeing from his point of view and mm-hmm. how he's taking things is that he's putting all of this on the slaves themselves. He's saying, you know, like They're complaining, but fully expect to, you know, be slaves forever. They're bereft of humanity. I've never seen anybody without that spiritual spark. It's hard to feel sorry for them because they're obviously little more than beasts of labor. When in reality, yes, they have been slaves for years because they were taken into slavery. The slavers specifically take away their humanity so they become Beasts of labor. Like, this is not something that they chose for themselves, and I think Wintro's just shielding his mind from the fact that yes, there are absolute horrors in the world, and you signed up. Well, not didn't really sign up. He vehemently fought against signing up <laughs> for this, but he signed up to be on a slave ship. Right. You know he was he was going to be a part of that. So I feel like yes, he is a great he's a good person at heart. I really think that his mind just can't comprehend the cruelty that they go through and experience when they're first becoming slaves and when they've been and compare it to what they are after years and years of mistreatment. Right. And I, he's trying to like shield his mind from that reality a little bit.
1: That's fair. And I guess it's also probably pretty hard for a 13 year old to look at the bigger picture and see the system in place that is allowing people to get to this point. Yeah. You're just seeing the people themselves and seeing how dispirited they are. And I think it'd probably be a little bit like Fitz seeing the forged people. And it feels just so wrong and unnatural that it's hard to grasp how this happened or why it's just such a viscerally, bad feeling that you get from witnessing it, that you Mm -hmm. just have to distance yourself in any way. It is a great
0: parallel between the two. Yeah.
1: Just this overwhelming feeling of this is wrong and there should be more life for these people. And there isn't. And I think, especially because Wintro is hearing that this is kind of saws temples fault, at least in, in this area that maybe he's trying to justify it in that way of he doesn't want them to be wrong because what does that mean for him? That means that even a priest is corruptible. And I think in his mind, he can't fathom that. I think it's hard for him to picture a priest of saw being able to turn a blind eye to something for no reason.
0: Yeah. And especially with as growing up in a monastery The satrapy is centered around Jamalia. This is like the holy place. So if the temples here are like, no, that's, that's civil business, not ours. Then maybe the priest made a judgment, you know?
1: Right. And just trying to, I I, I think it's, I don't like what he's saying and I don't think that it's good, but I do think he's 13 and trying to rationalize a very hard thing with the fact that he will become one of them looming in his mind. Yeah. So I think it's okay to kind of give him grace in this moment.
0: Oh yeah. He's definitely going through a hard time.
1: Yeah. But it is also going to be interesting to see how that changes him as a person going forward.
0: Mm -hmm. Because in his mind, he's wrestling with one day He has one day to call the keeper over and tell him that his father is Kyle Haven and to come get him. Otherwise, he's going to be tattooed, sold, and then tattooed again and forever be in slavery. So he's thinking, either way, I'm going to be captured against my will. Either way, I will not become a priest of Saw. I will not go back to my monastery. What is the best option that will give me escape? Which one should I choose? Should I just wait and sit here and become a slave? Or should I call the keeper over And go back to Vivatia and maybe become a priest that way. So in his head, he's just wrestling with those two options and can't really decide.
1: Right. Well, on the one hand, if his father comes to get him, he has to deal. uh, He will not have a scarred face. He won't have to worry about being a slave, but he does have to deal with the embarrassment of calling his father for help because he messed up. So he's has to deal with that. And I think, that really bothers him that that is what's stopping him is just the idea that he has to give his father a reason to look down on him more. And I don't
0: think that's the only reason though.
1: No, but that is a big reason why he hasn't already just broken down and called his father. He does say that. So I don't know. I think that's a really big thing, but also on the other hand, if he does get tattooed, that's it. There is nowhere he can go to be free anymore.
0: And so he's sitting with that indecision, and all of a sudden he sees Torg walking slowly along the fronts of the slave stalls. And he was shocked when his heart gave a leap of near joy when he finally recognized Torg. What it was, he realized, was relief. Torg would see him and tell his father. He would not have to make what he had always suspected was a cowardly decision. So in his mind, calling the keeper for his father, like say, hey, my father will buy me was the coward's way out because he would be going and calling for help. But with Torg here, Wintro's kind of relieved because that would take it out of his hands, take that decision out. And there he, he. thinks about it. It's like, Oh, much, much could be gained from my mind and about me about my decisions. If I contemplated on this, but he steers his mind away from that. And he's not going to think about self-reflection at this point.
1: Right. I do also want to mention, because we kind of skimmed over it. What happens if you were a slave with slave tattoos and become quote unquote freed? Uh, Because I think it's important for us to know that about the world and to like, just put that in our little knowledge banks. Um, But it does say that if he became a slave, that he wouldn't be free unless he either escaped or worked free of slavery, but he would forever remain someone else's property, at least legally. So in the case of a slave, even if he worked free of the debt, he would still need paperwork showing that somebody owned him but was allowing him to live as a free person. Right. He would never be able to belong to himself again, which is horrific, that there is literally no end in sight for these people. Of course, the people across the way feel like they're going to die as slaves because there's no way out. (laughs) So now Torg is here, like you said, and it's really weird that Torg is here because... Wintro thinks about how Torg told his father that he had all these connections and his father's goal was to get high quality slaves. So it's odd that they're here at this place because this obviously isn't like an artisan area or somewhere where a high quality slave would be sold. So it's odd to see Torg here. but And he's buying,
0: he seems to be buying a lot in this area, in this section.
1: Right. I did want to ask you. Do you think Torg made up having connections to people with good slaves or did they just not have enough funds to buy better slaves? Like, why I is don't, Torg here?
0: I don't think Torg ever said that he has connections to buy better slaves specifically. I think he's just, I have been in the slave trade before. I have connections. I know how this works. So I will be important on this journey kind of thing. I think... The we will buy artisans and things like that because they're worth more was a good fairy tale that Kyle built up in his head to try to justify it to himself as well. Right. And to justify to, you know, Kefria and Ronica and things like, and and people like that. But I think all along that would be extremely difficult to do as we see examples of Kennet freeing slave ships only maybe a few of the people on board are artisans or musicians. That doesn't happen often at all. Right. Those people are usually not slaves. The majority are just going to be poor debtors who are just taken in for labor. So I think, I think he was just kind of delusional when he was saying Mm -hmm. like, I'm going to fill the hold with artisans and stuff. And then the rest, whatever room else will pack around with, you know, the laborers.
1: Hmm. Okay.
0: But Wintrow is puzzling over that because in his mind, yeah, we're going to get the educated ones who are going to have a good life, which I think Wintrow also shielded his own mind with that. Right. Just like, yeah, these, these slaves aren't actually going to be bad slaves. They're going to be pampered and taken care of and sought after. But then he sees Torg swaggering along buying a lot of these laborers and map faces and whoever else is on this alley.
1: He also talks about how Torg is holding himself. He strutted for the keeper as if he were a man worth impressing, inspecting the slaves with fine disregard for their dignity or comfort. And I think that's really interesting. I think the whole time we see Torg in this situation, Torg is kind of trying to come off as though he might be the captain. Or the person in charge of the ship. He's definitely trying to play as somebody more important than he is. And I think this is the first little example of that. Where he's using that power to show how much better he is than everyone else. And this also right. lets Wintro know what his future will be like if he doesn't get noticed by Torg. That he will have to deal with other Torgs for the rest of his life.
0: Yeah. Here then was the counterpoint to the slave's loss of spirit and spark a man whose self-importance fed on the humiliation and degradation of others. So, Wintrow is still sitting there in indecision. He's like, this is my future here, but also, what happens if he turns and recognizes me? Am I going to plead to the man to call my father? Would he just walk on by me and not recognize me? It's still that indecision is eating him inside.
1: Well, he's also scared. What if Torg doesn't see him at all? Does he yell out after him? Is that worse than just sending someone to his father?
0: (laughs) Torg walks past, glances, and does a double take and recognizes Wintro. His eyes widened and then a grin split his face. He immediately left his task to stride over to Wintro. Well, well. I do believe I've earned myself quite a bonus here, quite a bonus. And he repeats himself, well, well, doesn't look le- as if your freedom lasted long, holy boy. And so they have a whole conversation like, oh, you know this, you know, this prisoner it's like, yeah, his father is my business partner.
1: Which again is Torque. I think, trying to be more important than he is. His business partner, you mean the captain of your ship where your third mate or second mate, I guess there's only two, but... Still, again, with Torg trying to be more self important. We're business partners. <laughs> no.
0: So then the keeper explains the situation that this is the last day, otherwise, he is going to be the satrap's slave. And Torg asks how much the fine is. The old man consulted a tally cord at his waist 12 bits of silver. He killed one of the satrap's other slaves, you know. He what? For a moment, Torg looked incredulous Then he burst out laughing. Well, I doubt that, but I don't doubt there's quite a tale attached to it. So if I come back with 12 silver bits tonight, I buy him free. What if I don't? What would he sell for tomorrow when he goes to the markets? And the keeper shrugged, whatever he would bring, maybe you'd save a coin, maybe you wouldn't. It's going to be an auction. So, you know, he'd have a face tattoo but you might be able to save a couple coins. Torg asks then, and we get some more background world information about slavery and how the marks affect people, and a little bit more details on the paperwork that you were discussing before. Torg asks, couldn't we just burn the tattoo off? His eyes devoured Wintrow's face, looking for some kind of fear. Wintrow refused to show any. Torg would never dare to let it go so far. This was but the same kind of mockery and taunting the man always indulged in. If Wintrow gave any sign of being upset by it, Torg would only indulge in more of it. He let his eyes wander past Torg as if he were no longer interested in him or his words. And the Keeper explains that burning off a slave tattoo is illegal, and a person with a burned scar on the left of his nose is assumed to be an escaped and dangerous slave. He'd be brought right back here if he were caught and tattooed again with the satrap sign. So we get a little a little bit more detail about the burn marks. And we had some of that before from Sorcor when he was right. talking to Kennet because Sorcor also has a burn mark on his face from the burned off slave tattoos. But here's from the other side saying that, yeah, they're presumed to be extremely dangerous and brought immediately back. Doesn't mean you're free. Any right. sort of burn mark in that area indicates that you're a slave.
1: He also did say earlier that... With the face marking, Torg or, fa- or Winchrow's father could grant him his freedom, but he'd have to have some tattoo from them or a paper slash ring to say he was free.
0: Yeah. And like Birk's grandmother had an earring.
1: Yes. Exactly. So something to mark him as free, even though he has a tattoo saying that he's a slave. So... Instead of doing anything in this moment or even promising to come back for Wintrow, Torg takes that information in that if he doesn't save his face from being tattooed, he will be permanently marked as some sort of slave. And then it turns around and continues with the buying of the other slaves. That is the end of that conversation. Wintrow is hopeful. That means that he's going to go get his father. He knows he's going to wait until the last possible minute. But at least the decision is done. It's out of his hands now.
0: And Wintrow hears Torg say that, you know, don't worry about it. I'll pass along the word to his father and he's not going to be pleased with the boy. So Wintrow, for the first time, instead of contemplating his situation, if he did call his father or if he did wait to become a slave and see what he could do for the future, contemplates the direct actions of this and thinks that with a sudden cold sinking of his heart, he considered how vast his father's anger would be. He'd feel humiliated as well. Kyle Haven did not like to be humiliated. He'd find ways of expressing that to his son. He should have just waited and endured. It was less than a year now to his 15th birthday. When it came, he would declare himself a man independent of his father's will and just step off the ship wherever it was. This foolish attempt at running away was only going to make the months stretch longer. Why hadn't he waited? Slowly he sank down to sit in the straw in the corner of his pen, He closed his eyes to sleep. Sleeping was far better than considering his father's anger to come. So now Wintrow's getting a little bit of, oh, well, it was just a year and a couple months. I could have waited, but now my father's going to make life on the ship even worse than it was before. When he was undermining his relationship with the rest of the crew, when he was purposely... Putting him in hard places and positions doesn't really consider him his son anymore, but just an extension of his ego to be bruised or not.
1: Right. It's really sad that he has to think about stuff like that. But it is also frustrating that he didn't listen when Vivesha pointed this out right. earlier, that he could have saved all of this. And obviously in the moment, it felt like if he doesn't do it now, it's never going to happen but I guess hindsight is always twenty twenty because he's like, yeah, it actually isn't even a full year until I can legally be free of my father and not have to run away. And yet here he is now in a jail cell because he can't be free.
0: Well, we move on to Kennet, who is, after we just passed um, the previous chapter, Just got his leg chopped off by Etta.
1: Yes. After it was being tugged on by a serpent. Yes. I do quick want to make one more closing statement about the Wintro chapter. I do think that this chapter is all the more heartbreaking to a rereader because even though Wintro barely has any hope and he's still really scared about the future, he still doesn't know how much worse it's going to get. Right. And it's, I don't know, I think more heartbreaking because at least when you're a first-time reader, you can kind of be like, yeah, this is going to be awful for him. But at least he got out of there without being marked as a slave.
0: Uh-huh.
1: Ugh, it's yep. bad. But also, there is a hint that, or I guess, knowledge before this that he will become a slave. Because if you remember, there's that scene earlier in this book where... Amber is looking for the nine fingered slave boy.
0: Yep. When Althea meets her on the docks.
1: Yes. And Winter has nine fingers and now he's in a position where he could become a slave. So... If you were a really, really smart first time reader, you could have picked up that like, oh, no, he's definitely going to become a slave. Although maybe you don't even need that much of a hint. Maybe you just know the situation and know Torg and his father. Right. And know like, oh, no, there's no way he's coming out of this. Oh, you can save a couple a coins. Perfect. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but it is ultimately ho- sad and horrific that what is what is going to happen next? It's just bad.
0: <laughs> now we have Kennet. Laying in his sickbed, growling at everyone to get out, as Etta is trying to change his bandaging, and she dares to say, I thought a fresh bandage might be more comfortable. That one is stiff with dry blood, and get out, he roared. She whirled, and the door of his cabin thudded shut behind her. He had been awake and clear headed since early morning, but those were the first words he had spoken to anyone. He had spent most of that time staring at the wall, unable to grasp that his luck had forsaken him. How could this have happened to him? How was it possible for Captain Kennett to suffer this? Well, it was time. Time to see what the bitch had done to him. Time to take command again. Time. He braced his fists deep in his bedding and hauled himself upright to a sitting position. When his injured leg dragged against the bedding, the pain was such that he felt ill a new sweat broke out on him plastering his stinking nightshirt to his back once again time he grabbed the bedclothes and tore them aside he looked down at his leg she had ruined it was gone so he's kind of trying to comprehend what has happened to him of course as we mentioned before blaming at a bit for uh, chopping off the leg
1: <laughs> yes it's So funny because he's not even thinking about how he almost died or how the serpent is the one that's really the cause of him losing his leg. And like none of that. It's all just Etta did this for no reason. Like if you were dropped in to start at this chapter, for all you would know, Etta cut his leg off for no reason. There is no mention of any other outside thing. It's just, I can't believe Etta <laughs> did this to me. It's so weird. I don't know. And maybe it's just because, because of who Kenneth is and what his background is. He just wants to believe everyone's going to betray you at some point. And yeah. so this was just Etta trying to make him less capable. I don't. I don't really know how this would be a good plan for Etta to not have just killed him when she had the chance instead of just chopping off a leg. Like, I don't know how that equates in his mind to equal in some way.
0: (laughs) I don't, I I don't think his brain is going towards like she was planning on killing me, but more so he does explain or rant in his head (laughs) that why am I going after slavers? They always have serpents Merchant money, merchant ships are where the money is. It's Sorcor and Etta's fault that I'm not a whole man anymore. So I feel like the blame and the paranoia is coming from like, why would I listen to them if they want to do something else? I know what's smart. I know the best thing for me. And if it wasn't for them, I'd be a whole man. So I, for the first couple pages at least, I didn't feel like it was a deliberate they're coming to get me kind of thing. It was a, why did I listen to those stupid people in my, in my mind, at least?
1: I guess. I mean, I I think it in my mind that equates to them coming to get him because what would be the purpose of making him do things he doesn't want to do other than taking over the ship? And
0: see, that's where your paranoia is. coming.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I think he even says in his little rant here in the next couple paragraphs that he wants to know if they're working together to out him from his power. Right. So if they were trying, if either of them were trying to take away his power, as he thinks again, why wouldn't they have just killed him or let the serpent take him? Then I don't like, I don't see where his logic goes. He's just trying to find a person to blame and a reason Mm -hmm. to not trust anyone.
0: Yeah. And he's willing himself to be calm right now. he, Keynes draws a breath and then just in his head like, I'm not going to make another sound. Just be calm. I was, I'm trapped in this cabin, unable to walk or fight. And Edda and Sorcor were both against him. What he had to figure out now was if they were in league with one another. And why had they done this to him? Why? Did they hope to take the ship from him? He took another breath, tried to organize his thoughts. Why did she do this to me? He says out loud. A second of thought occurs to him. Why didn't she just kill me then? Was she afraid my crew would turn on her? If so, then perhaps she and Sorkor were not in league. "'She did it to save your life,' the tiny voice from his wrist was incredulous. "'How can you be this way? Don't you remember it at all?' A serpent had you by the leg. He was trying to pick you up and flip you into the air so he could gulp you down. Etta had to cut your leg off. It was the only way to keep him from getting all of you. "'I find that very difficult to believe,' he sneered at the charm." "'Why?' "'Because I know her, that's why.' "'As do I. "'Which is why that answer doesn't make sense either,' "'the face observed cheerily. "'Shut up.' Kenneth forced himself to look at the ramped stump. "'How bad is it?' "'He asked the charm in a low voice. "'Well, for starters, it's gone,' "'the charm informed him heartlessly.' At his hatchet chop was the only clean part of the severing. The part of the serpent did was half-chewed and half-sort of melted away. The flesh reminded me of melted tallow. Most of the brown stuff isn't blood, it's oozing pus. Shut up, Kennet said faintly. He stared at the clotted, smeary bandaging and wondered what was beneath it. It was disgusting. Little demon grinned up at him. Well, you asked. And Kenneth bellows out for Sorkor. And the door flies open almost immediately, but it was Etta who stood there, teary and distraught. Oh, Kenneth, are you in pain? And he's like, I want Sorcor.
1: Clearly, he isn't thinking straight. He is just trying to have a reason not to trust Etta. Right. Like his wrist companion says, how can you not think straight? How are you? Why are you like this? (laughs) Basically. (laughs) And Kenneth's like, I know better than you. And he's like, dude, I am you. <laughs> <laughs> it's just really weird. And it's so strange how different the two are. But I think this is also a really interesting scene because it lets us know that the wizard would, even though it's connected to Kennet and part of Kennet, cannot read his mind. Right. We can guess how he's thinking, but it doesn't comment on the situation until he can hear Kennet out loud say, why did Etta do this to me? Yeah. So I think that's really interesting. And again, even though they are f- from the same being in some way, like all of Kenneth's essence is used to awaken this, so it is Kenneth in some weird way. It still can't fathom Kenneth's train of thought or why Kennet is doing this. And I thought that was interesting too.
0: Definitely. They, it's an interesting dynamic between the two. <laughs> yeah. For sure.
1: Heartless versus <laughs> not heartless, Kenneth.
0: And so when Kenneth bells out for Sorcor, Edis is there first, but Sorcor is kind of close behind saying, is there aught I can do for you, Captain? And obviously both of them are very concerned and Kennet does not like that. <laughs> They're both concerned for Kenneth. He tried to remember why he had called for Sorcor. He looked down at the disgusting mess in his bed. I want this cleaned up. Have a hand, heat some water for a bath for me, and lay out a clean shirt. He looked up at Sorcor's incredulous stare and realized he was treating him more like a valet than his uh, second-in-command. Is it valet or valet? Valet. I've heard both for some reason. I don't know. I've
1: never heard valet.
0: Okay. "'You understand that how I appear "'when I interrogate the prisoners is important. "'They must not see me as crippled wreck "'in a wad of dirty bedding.' "'Prisoners?' Sorkor asked stupidly. "'Prisoners,' Kennet replied firmly. "'I directed that three were to be saved, did I not?' "'Yes, sir, but that was... "'And were not three saved for me to question?' "'I have one,' Sorkor admitted uneasily. "'Or what's left of one. "'Your woman has been at him.' "'What?' "'It was his fault,' Etta growled low as a threatening cat, all his fault that you were hurt. Her eyes had gone to alarming slits. "'Well, one,' you say, Kenneth attempted a recovery. "'What kind of a creature had he brought aboard his ship?' "'Don't think of that just now. Take command.' "'See to my orders, then. When I've made myself presentable, I'll want the prisoner brought here. "'I don't wish to see much of the crew just now. How did the rest of the capture go?' So we, before we get into that explanation, we have the surprise. Hey, Etta's been torturing this poor guy. And they have what's left of one prisoner available for Kenneth to question. And we find out later that she did start with three.
1: Yes. It's super weird to me that. I don't know that Etta would do this, number one. I mean, really? I it's hard, right? I don't want to say that I don't think she's capable because obviously she is. It's just odd that she would take out her anger in this way against these three people for what feels like no reason. I, I mean, obviously, she feels like there has to be some blame for what she had to do. And maybe that's like her way of distancing herself from the action that she did. And she obviously feels guilty. So instead of thinking about why she feels guilty for something that saved somebody's life, It's more like, well, he wouldn't have been in this position if it weren't for these people trying to get away. I'm going to kill them and not just kill them. I'm going to torture them to get answers and then kill them. I just think that in general feels weird because I guess we don't really see get to see Etta as vengeful before this. She
0: is. No, except for the fact that she repeatedly stabbed a dead man, basically. In Divi Town.
1: Yeah, but that, that wasn't self-defense. Right. That wasn't like she went out of her way to do that to somebody Yes.
0: Who's- yes. But she wasn't like. Obviously, it was a harrowing experience, and she was distraught, but not in like. She wasn't upset and being like, oh my god, I just did this. Like, I say saved, saved my life. It was after. They were on the ground and everything was subdued and she just kept stabbing them and then was kind of like fine when she got pulled off. We've seen her be very violent before, have those kinds of thoughts. And she looks to Kenneth as, you know, someone who pulled her out of the despair that Divi Town is and her life there. And with the charm kind of roping her in, creates that undying loyalty.
1: Yeah, I guess. I don't know. It just.
0: I, I agree with you on the part that like she directed her her guilt and her anger at the situation towards them, and knows and she is she is very intelligent, so she knows what kind of things that Kenneth is looking for for information as well. Right. So she took it upon herself to exact a little bit of revenge, but also get that information so Kenneth didn't have to exert himself or you know have any. It didn't have to be near those people anymore
1: right I don't know I guess maybe because we only get one little snippet in Edda's point of view as well as everything else from Kenneth's point of view I just personally didn't see this coming I remember from the first read I remember being kind of shocked that she went that far over something that isn't actually their fault I mean I'm not shocked that she was able to successfully take over what Kenneth wanted to do and like get the information she needed. I think that's really impressive, but I, I guess I just was shocked at the vitriol maybe from her about the situation and the fact mm. that she would just kill two people and seriously uh. maim another. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. It just, I think that surprised me. I I don't know. I guess she becomes Queen of the Pirates later. It, I don't know. It I thought it was just a little weird.
0: It didn't surprise me at all, really. I think the first time through it, it did a little bit, but I took it in stride. But the, the rereads that I've had, it didn't surprise me because Divi Town is painted as an extremely violent place, mm-hmm. like extremely violent, where you don't go to some side alleys because... Anybody, literally anyone will just kill you and take anything you have unless you have a reputation or people surrounding you. And she was a prostitute in that town. Right. <laughs> where people even care even less about who you are because you're, you're just there for a service. Right. So I, I feel like with her growing up there, and being lifted out, like, I don't, I see that desensitization of violence from her point of view, besides she, like, didn't want to go below decks with the taking of a, another ship, you know, when Sorker was say, suggesting that this is pretty violent, maybe the lady should go below decks. You know, she was very happy to just, like, watch it. Yeah. I don't know, She she's very accustomed apparently to all of that sort of thing.
1: Yeah. I guess I'm not saying that it's, I don't know. Like, I don't know how to explain this well, but essentially like it it doesn't surprise me that she wouldn't shy away from seeing violence. It surprises me that she would be the aggressor.
0: I think it's because of her deep emotional connection to Kenneth. He's like the only one who gave any sort of semblance of care to her. And with the charm saying that basically he loved her, that's probably the only time that has happened in her life.
1: I guess. I don't know. I think in general, though, she seems more of like a. Like a witty sort of villain, not like a murderous sort of villain. <laughs> not that I even think she's a villain. I just like mm. to explain I, to better explain, like if I had to pick a way that she would torture someone. What do you think is Kenneth Like, which... I don't think Kennet would have killed the people like. I don't know. I guess maybe he would have used torture, but I don't think he would have gone so far that they would have died. I don't know. He kills people all the time.
0: He definitely would have killed them at the end that after he got yeah, his information or that's true. if there was possibly money involved, maybe ransom the captain, but the other two now he would have killed them.
1: Yeah, I guess I get that. I think the way I see Kenneth is more of like, he's not going to toy with you. He's going to get the information he wants via talking and then he's going to murder you and it's not going to be slow. I don't think he likes killing or torture. I think he just knows it's part of the job and does it, if that makes sense. And so in my head, Etta also like, I don't think Etta cares about violence. I don't think it bothers her in any sense. I just think I thought that she would be more of a, I'll, I don't know, talk at you until I get whatever. I, hmm. I don't know. I just didn't see her being a murderer but
0: like I said, the the intense emotion, I think, brought out and what you said, too, with the, the guilt and directing the anger really right. brought out that action.
1: Yeah. And I guess whatever, it's pretty neat to see a woman be a murderer. <laughs> just teasing. No, I, I don't know. I guess I just was surprised because up until this point, I didn't see her as somebody who would. Do something like that. But. I don't know. I guess it's not that I thought that she was too dainty to do it. It just right. felt below her, if that makes sense.
0: Putting her on a pedestal.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> well, Kenneth is asking after the haul and how the rest of the capture worked out. And Sorkor said it was very slick it went well and this ship was a little bit special because there was a gift from the satrap of himself to some high muck the muck in chelcid a troop of dancers and musicians all with their instruments and fancy duds and pots of face paint and jewels several nice little casks of sparklies i stowed those under your bunk sir and an assortment of fine clothes lace and some silver statues and bottled brandies a very nice little haul not weighty but all of the best quality Sorkor is very happy with how this went and knows that will cheer up Kenneth a bit because it's actual concrete value (laughs) as well. (laughs) And uh, suggests maybe you want some of the brandy right now. And Kenneth's like, no, no, no. In a bit. No. And then Kenneth pokes at how the dancers and musicians are feeling. Basically obtusely saying are they okay with being freed or were they like
1: excited to go on this journey? <laughs> yeah.
0: And Sorko like, nah, they're, they're great with being freed. They were slaves as well. You know, just because they were highly valued does not make them any more excited to be a slave than other people would be. Right. And they are very excited and happy that to, uh, you know, create songs and things in your honor because you were the hero that saved them. Right.
1: I do also want to talk about how, we learn a little bit more about the state of things through a little detail here. Sorcor explains to Kenneth that the slaves themselves weren't even in debt. It was the owner of the company that owed money. And because the owner owed money, he sold them as slaves to Well, the satrap the
0: ordered the, yes. the musicians and everything to be claimed as well.
1: Yes. Which I think is really interesting because This is going beyond just, oh, this person couldn't pay their taxes. They're a slave now. Now it's reaching to I'm going to make people slaves because I just need more slaves to send places. It's To
0: settle your debt, we need to claim your assets, which includes your workers.
1: Which even though they weren't slaves, they're being treated as though they are the same in that they're just assets, like you said. And I think that's really important and does paint more of a picture of the ultimate corruption that's happening in Jamalia. But clearly things are bad. <laughs>
0: and, and it's like a gift too. I don't yeah. even think they're being really sold because Satrap Cosgo wants to make good his relations with Chelsid because he gets all of his, you know, pleasures from there. Right. The herbs and whatever else.
1: So of course they have to get the best slaves. Yeah. Which means even worse, that he probably sought them out specifically because he knew they would be a good gift to the Chalcedians. Yep. I mean, I guess that's just me with my little tinfoil hat <laughs> saying that, but I don't think it's out of the realm of the possibility. No, no,
0: that's probably possible.
1: <laughs> yeah, that he was just like, you know what, actually, the Chalcedians need some entertainment. Um, We're collecting you guys for the debt, too. Perfect.
0: So Kenneth is making some observations like, oh, we're at dock. Where are we? Why have we stopped moving? And Sorcor is explaining the whole thing that the other ship was taking on some water. So they're cleaning it up, pumping out the water, doing some minor repairs. And then we'll head to Bull Creek. I was thinking, you know, we've got plenty of manpower to keep the pumps going all the way there. Kenneth asks, why there? And Sorcor says, there's a decent haul out beach there and shakes his head. "'She'll take some work before she's seaworthy again, "'and Bull Creek has been raided twice in the last year by slavers, "'so I think we'll be welcomed there.' "'There, you see?' Kenneth said faintly. "'He smiled to himself. "'Sorcor was right. "'The man had learned much from him. "'Put a ship there, speak persuasively there, "'and he could win over another little town. "'What could he say to them?' "'If the Pirate Isles had one ruler that raiders feared, "'folk could live.' "'A tremble ran through him, and Etta rushes to him.' Lie back, lie back. You've got gone white as a sheet, you know, and then starts bossing Sorcor around, you know, go for the basin, do what he wants, everything like that. Uh, bring the bandaging in the basin outside. I'll want them now. And Kenneth's listening in dismay as she ordered his mate about with a fine disdain for protocol. Kenneth says, Sorcor can bandage this. And she says, I'm better. And Sorcor interrupts him saying, actually, sir, she has quite a nice touch for it. Took care of all of our boys after the last set too, and did a fine job of it. I'll see to the wash water, and then he's gone, leaving Kenneth helpless and alone with the bloodthirsty wench.
1: <laughs> it's oh my gosh, he is so. Distrustful of Edda. And I wonder
0: Well, I mean, wouldn't you be after your whole thing of like
1: I mean, I guess. I don't know. I personally would have thanked her for her service of keeping me alive, but whatever.
0: Of torturing the prisoners. Well,
1: he doesn't know all the details yet. He just knows that is a little scared of her and that she did talk to the she messed him up. But you know what? He doesn't know all the details yet. It's fine.
0: I think he could read between the lines when he says, what sort of person did I let on my boat?
1: (laughs) Right. No, I'm just saying, clearly she hasn't done anything to him yet. So can't be that bad. And I don't know. It's just so silly. I think it's maybe semi. Personally, I feel like Kenneth does somewhere weird, have feelings for her. And we've talked about that. Yeah. yeah.
0: I think we both think that.
1: And that this is just him trying to distance himself from that feeling. This is Mm -hmm. another reason why he can't give his heart away or like somebody because they just disappoint you in the end and they just want to hurt you. I also
0: think he's kind of incapable of doing that with his forging through Paragon as well. Like he just can't make that connection. I think he feels it in the back of his head, but he just, his brain interprets it as this person is useful.
1: Well, the thing about the forging that happened... We know that that doesn't stop them from be able, being able to create new memories, right? No,
0: but with uh, with Fitz, who's the other person, point of view that we get, who is partially forged and then gets his memory back, and from Fitz's friends mm-hmm. who talk to him, it's like he's just kind of going through life and not really connecting with anything. Just yeah. time passes him by. It. It makes it feel like he's in a big depression. And that's Fitz, right. obviously. He just lives in a big depression. But when he gets his memories back, everything is so sharp and in focus, things seem colorful again. And for Kenneth, it just seems that the human connection just no longer is possible for him.
1: I guess. I don't know. I feel like, I, I don't know how to say this without it sounding horrible, but I don't think he had a lot of experience with love. And so there probably wasn't a lot of love to give away. And so that's why I feel like that emotion shouldn't be that affected other than from trauma based. Like I think that he has problems with love solely because of his trauma, not because of any forging. Mm, that maybe. That's what I'm trying to say. Like yeah. I agree that he has problems showing love. I just don't think that comes from a place of him it's being okay. capable because of forging. Yeah. And I think that like, because he doesn't know love at least that we know of, In any meaningful way in his childhood and up until this point, it would be really hard to know how to act on that, but also be able to fully trust anyone after the kind of life he's lived.
0: Although we can assume that his father loved him a bit, but we know his mother loved him. Yes. So he did have some familial love there.
1: And I Um, guess maybe he like Fitz put his mother's love away. And so it would be harder.
0: Possible. I don't know. He's very th- Kalistor, So
1: Yes. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe it is all because he's forged. I was thinking more though. It was trauma based pushing away.
0: Definitely could be.
1: Could be a little bit both. But you never know.
0: So Edda starts talking him through what they're going to do to re-bandage his leg. And uh, Kenneth is like, well, you seem to know a great deal about this and what you're doing. And she points out that whores get beaten up a lot. If the women in a house don't take care of each other, who will? And I should trust the care of my injury to the woman who cut my leg off? He asked coolly. All her motions ceased. Like a flower wilting, she sank down on the floor beside his bed. Her face was very pale. She leaned forward until her forehead rested on the edge of his bed. It was the only way I could save you. I'd have cut off both my hands instead of your leg if that would have saved you. This declaration struck Kenneth as so profoundly absurd that he was speechless for a moment. The charm, however, was not. Captain Kennett can be a heartless pig, but I assure you that I understand that you did what you had to do to preserve me. I thank you for your deed. Shock warred with fury that the charm would so betray itself to another, He immediately clapped his hand over it, only to feel tiny teeth sink savagely into the meat of his palm. He snatched his hand away with a gasp of pain as Etta lifted her face to regard him with tear-filled eyes. "'I understand,' she said hoarsely. "'There are many roles a man has to play. "'It is probably necessary that Captain Kennet be a heartless pig.' She shrugged her shoulders and tried to smile. "'I do not hold it against the Kennet who is mine.' Her nose had turned red and her leaky eyes were most distressing. Worse, she had dared to believe him capable of thanking her for cutting off his leg. Mentally, he cursed his sly, malicious charm for putting him such a fix, even as he grasped at the straw of hope that she truly believed such words could come from his lips. Let's say no more about it, he suggested hastily. Make the best you can of the wretched mess of my leg. And so she continues on to bandage the leg a little bit and sweat is sheathing his body and wasn't even aware that Sorkor had come back until the mate offered him an open bottle of brandy.
1: So I want to back up a little bit. Um, I think it's really interesting that even with Kenneth feeling a little bit of hope that, Oh my gosh, she believes that I'm capable of loving her in that way and is obviously reacting well to this. He is such an awkward, almost teenage boy in the way that he responds is like, Well, let's just not talk about it anymore. Because he can't I think because he can't think of anything else sweet sounding to say. Like he just he doesn't know what to do to keep this going in a favorable way for him. So he's like, Okay, let's just stop talking.
0: <laughs> Interesting.
1: So, yeah, I, I read that as a very, like, oh, wow, okay, that worked. That's weird. Uh, glad that she likes me, but I don't know what to do now. So, anyway, I don't know. Very interesting.
0: I read it a different way where I think he wants to keep up his persona, his harsh persona. So, like, let's not talk about it. Let's don't discuss anything. And it mirrors what the charm set as well basically like I, in private we can do this stuff but not in public and it works out in captain kennett's favor when he's awake um but i do agree with yes he's super awkward doesn't know really what to say about it but i think it's for me in my mind it's him preserving his tough guy persona basically <laughs> And who he believes Captain Kennet is and has to be to be the captain of this ship and a pirate.
1: Right. Yeah, that's fair, I guess.
0: But either way, Kennet is, as we've said, awkward with <laughs> discussions about his emotions and feelings. Shuts it down and eventually Sorcor is back handing him an open bottle of brandy, which Kennet is kind of just standing like, oh, please give me a glass. And Sorcor is like, no, I Figured you might need the whole bottle. (laughs) And says, from the look of your leg, you know, I thought it might be a waste of time to get that glass. And if Kenneth hadn't heard that from Sorkor, he might not have looked at the stump, but he turns his head to look at it and notices that having that dirty bandaging on there actually cushioned the shock of him losing his leg because it's way worse than with the bandage on. Everything's kind of... "'eaten away, it's not looking great, "'and H- Sorcor's hand was shaking "'as he offered him the glass. "'Ridiculous, the man had dealt worse injuries "'than the one he was looking at now. "'Kennett took the glass and downed the brandy at a gulp. "'Then he took a shaky breath. "'Well, perhaps his luck had held in one odd way. "'At least the whore knew how to doctor him. "'Snatching even that bare comfort away from him, "'Eta said in a quiet whisper to Sorkor, "'This is a mess,' We need to get him to a healer, and quickly. He counted three breaths as he drew them. He gestured with the glass at Sorkor, but when the man tried to fill his glass, kind of took the whole bottle to himself instead. One drink, three breaths. Another drink, three breaths. No, it was time. It was time now. He pushes himself into a sitting position, unties the lace of his nightshirt at his throat, asking where the wash water is. He's doesn't wish to sit there in his own stink he's he wants to get washed he wants to interrogate the prisoner and sorkor glances at etta before he says begging your pardon but a blind man isn't going to notice how you're dressed kind looked at him evenly who is our prisoner captain reft of the Cicerna? etta made us fish him out he was not blinded in the battle he was intact when he fell in the water yes sir Sorkor glanced at Etta and swallowed. So, that was the basis of this deferential wariness that the mate now had for his whore. It was almost amusing. It was evidently one thing for Sorkor to dismember a a man in battle, and quite another for the whore to torment one in captivity. He had not known Sorkor was prey to such niceties.
1: First of all, love of Kennet being an equality king. (laughs) Being like, yeah, why wouldn't a woman do that? Okay, and... Geez, Sorcor didn't know you had any niceties left in you. That is so funny to me because two
0: chapters in a row now.
1: I know, like. Kenneth's a horrible person and he is a trash person and like makes horrible, horrible decisions. But when it comes to men and women, he's like equal rights. We are equal. There is nothing that a man could do that a woman couldn't. But
0: from the (laughs) angle of like everyone can be horrible. Yeah. So why do you have the preconceived notions?
1: (laughs) Right. That a woman couldn't do this. I'm so confused. I that's the only thing I love about Kenneth is that he is very like gung ho about. Yeah, a woman could do it. Why not? (laughs)
0: But Kenneth is so delusional in this. Just like, I need to get out of bed. I need to get washed. Yes, it's his appearance, which he is meticulous about. But it's just, even if he is a horrible person, you're just like, Kenneth, just rest. You know? Let the person take care of you who wants to take care of you. Because you need healing.
1: I don't know. I kind of get it. I think.
0: I get it too. I I do. It's just frustrating to read and be like, stop.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I don't know. I guess it does feel... I kind of sympathize with him. I think this is the one thing he has control over or the one thing he's always had control over is how he looks and how he appears to others. True. And now he needs help doing that. And that takes away that little bit more of control that he doesn't want to give up.
0: Being in a helpless position is probably very traumatic for him. Right. And part of the reason why he locked a lot of those memories away and it's probably in his best interests mentally and probably have a built in to try to take control of those situations.
1: Right. And I just think that I like this way of taking control really makes me feel bad because clearly he's going back to a place where he feels more comfortable. He is trying to feel more refreshed. He is getting more cleaned up. It is, I don't know, just very interesting. I think makes him more full as a character and is really showing how out of sorts he is in this moment and how deeply he is being affected by this, that he is going back to, well, I have to at least appear like my appearance is number one priority. I need to look good. Even if a person can't see me, I need to look good to feel good. Right. And, that's what has to be that is my priority right now there are other things and i can't focus on that and i don't know i i think it's really impressive in a way that he is trying to do that instead of just continuing to wallow because i think it would be really easy to just lay back down and be like you know what i'm going to rest more what's the point who cares and instead he's trying to take that control back which i think is pretty brave.
0: Yeah, it is for sure. And he's trying to not cry out in pain, even though sh- sweat is instantly shooting his body as he moves.
1: <laughs> right. Yeah. It's, I don't he's know.
0: Feeling sick with pain.
1: Yeah. And I think it is really interesting that he is kind of still in control in this scene. I I find that such an interesting background theme that we have Kenneth feeling his most hep- helpless and he's so worried about where people's loyalty lies and if he has been able to keep the loyalty of Edda and Sorcor, and just be able to continue to be a captain. And the way he is trying to push against this fear is by being a captain, by ordering people around, by deciding what to do next and the other people aren't making decisions they're not telling him what to do they're waiting for him to make the next move and I think it's just for some
0: a, things I mean <laughs> I was still bossing Sorkor around and bringing in bandages but,
1: but nobody's but
0: kind of waited until Kenneth said like I want my wash water Sorkor do this and then Edda kind of like butts in and Takes control. Yeah, but, but no, in general, yeah.
1: But I mean, nobody's telling Kenneth what to do. And right, Edda's yeah. just making sure Sorcor does it faster, right? She's just amplifying his decision, even if she's doing it in a way that is not in order. I don't know. I just thought in general, it's a really interesting writing technique to show that even when Kenneth is spiraling and all he wants is to grasp for power, we still see that he is in power and that he is in control of this situation. I don't know. I guess that's his luck or maybe just the system he's set in place, but
0: yeah, I think just it's who he is.
1: Yeah. But I, I don't know. I really like that and thought it was interesting. This little subtle, like it's, I don't know, yeah. something that you could definitely skim over if you weren't thinking about it.
0: Yeah, for sure. And even now we get to see more examples of that because Opal, the ship's boy comes in with some wash water. Kind of course, is a little bit upset that he's, you know, not even daring to look at Kenneth or speak to him. I don't know if Kenneth's upset actually about that, but it says that Opal doesn't even dare to speak or look at Kenneth. But he says, "Mr. Sorkorse, sir, the music people want to make music on our deck for the captain. They said I should uh, beg your indulgence." And the brows, the boy's brow furrowed, furrowed with an effort to recall the foreign words. Um, they want to uh, express extreme gratitudes, something like that. Kenneth feels uh, feels a twitch at his wrist and looks down to the charm, nodding enthusiastically, and he says, "'The traitorous little bastard thing actually seemed to think "'he would heed its advice. It was mouthing some words at him. "'Sir?' Sorkor asks deferentially. As you said, they're kind of waiting for him to make the decision still. And Kenneth feigns rubbing at his head to bring the charm near his ear, which says, "A king should be gracious to his grateful subjects.'" A gift disdained can harden any man's heart. Kenneth abruptly decided it was good advice, regardless of the source. and says, yes, you know, tell them it would be, give me great pleasure. Harsh as my life has been, I am not a man who disdains the finer pleasures of the arts. Sar, the boy, blasphemed in admiration. He nodded, his face flushing with pride in his captain. A serpent might bite his leg off, but he'd still have time for culture. And then as he exits the room, Kenneth turns towards Etta and Sorkor, basically saying, you know, go to the prisoner, give him food and water to revive him, he says, and then wash me up. Make make me presentable as well. So as the mate leaves, Etta gives him a sponge bath. And he, Kenneth, in his mind, is like, oh, that's always a nasty way to bathe. Mere smearing of sweat and dirt instead of a clean washing away, but she managed it well enough that he actually felt clean. As she attended to the more intimate parts of such a washing, he reflected that perhaps there was more than one way for a woman to be useful to a man. The bathing and wrapping of his injury was still unpleasant enough that afterwards she had to once more wash sweat from his back, chest, and brow. With the soft music beginning and the gentle cleaning, it was actually sort of pleasant. And he describes how Etta matter-of-factly rips some seams, refits, and dresses him in some trousers and restitches it up so it he can dress without you know a ton of pain. There's still always going to be pain there, but it never occurred to him that Etta might possess such cha- such talents. Excuse me. Clearly, he had not appreciated how useful she might be to him. So there's a couple pages and a couple paragraphs where. Oh, it's maybe more useful or, you know, to have a woman around than just for one thing. And, oh, she is useful in these other things. You know, stitching my clothes, refitting those, cleaning and stripping the beds. You know, this is this is actually kind of nice.
1: <laughs> yeah, I just got done talking about how I'm so happy that he's Equality like a man. quality king. But um, then immediately goes back to, wow, I thought a woman only had one place. Turns out they have two. Um <laughs> it's so
0: stupid. They're both in the bedroom, but one's for cleaning.
1: (laughs) Yeah. To be fair, I feel like he, it's not that he thinks that women can't do other things. It's more that like, they're useful. Each person has one thing they can do. And he's surprised when that usefulness is like, Oh, I missed another useful thing. I don't think it's necessarily like woman as a whole. It's more like this specific woman. And of course, Or maybe it is women as a whole. Maybe he's only ever seen them as like either sex objects or just NPCs. I don't know. I
0: don't know. Maybe, but I feel like he would have dealt with pirates or, you know, merchants or some sort of people that are in positions of power that are women as well, but maybe not. I don't, I'm just assuming that. So it could, could just be male dominated in the pirate world.
1: Yeah, I don't think we've seen any examples of or heard about any examples of women being merchants. Um no, Althea knows how to deal with merchants.
0: Right. We but... do have Betel as the proprietor of her bagneo, but he doesn't have a ton of respect for her, but not necessarily a ton of disdain and she's reaching above her position or anything. It's yeah. like it's not because she's a woman. She's a proprietor of this place. She has to be over the top right in my favor whatever I just don't want it in my face
1: right that's just not how he likes doing business right which again I don't think stems because she's a woman in power it's more yeah. just like if anybody treated him that way he wouldn't love it so probably just
0: know. this individual yeah at this point
1: or in general just why men keep like he's never really thought about why a man would want a woman
0: yeah other than
1: yeah yeah other than for sex purposes i'm sure so to see a little touch of why men do want to have a partner maybe that's more the surprising thing Mm -hmm. than that like women have one place (laughs) it's more just like that's why men want women around it's for one thing it's like oh maybe there are two things (laughs)
0: after Kenneth is kind of cleaned up and dressed a little bit here He eats, wasn't aware that his hunger was that sharp, uh, and then settles down thinking about this, uh, maybe new talents or getting the most out of the woman near him and asks her, what inspired you to make free with my prisoner? I was so angry, so angry when they hurt you, when they made me hurt you. I vowed I'd get a live ship for you if it was the last thing I ever did. Plainly, that was what you wished to ask the prisoners about. So, at the times when I was warned to death of sitting by your bedside, but still could not sleep, I went to see them. Them? There were three at first, she shrugged casually. I believe I have the information you want. I checked and rechecked it most carefully. Nonetheless, I took care to keep one alive, as I was sure you'd wish to confirm it for yourself. A woman of many talents, and intelligent too. You'd probably have to kill her soon. And you discovered... And she explains that they had word of only two live ships. One was Ophelia, and she left Jamelia City before they did. Uh, But she still had town uh, goods to trade, so she'd be making other stops as she came north. And the other live ship they've seen lately was in Jamelia City. She came into the harbor the day before they left, and she didn't plan to be staying there for long. She was unloading cargo and being refitted to haul a load of slaves north to Chalcedon. That makes no sense to use a live ship so, Kenneth exclaimed in disgust. They lied to you. Etta gave a tiny shrug. That's always possible, I suppose, but they lied very well, individually, at different times. They convinced me. Easy enough to convince a woman. And that was the whole of what they they told you? She gave him a look that dared to be cool. Likely the rest was lies, too. I would hear it anyway, she sighed. They did not know much. Most of it was rumor. The two ships were in harbor together for less than a day. The Vivacia is owned by a Bingtown trader family named Haven. The ship will be making for Chelsea by the inside passage as swiftly as she can. They hope to buy mostly artisans and skilled workers, but might take on some others just for ballast. A man named Torg was in charge, charge of everything, but he didn't seem to be the captain. This is her maiden voyage. Kenneth shakes her head at her and says Haven isn't a trader name. And she spreads her hands at him, saying, "You were right. They lied to me." She turned her face from him and stared stonily at a bulkhead. "I'm sorry, I bungled the questioning." She was becoming intractable. Before we get into his conversation, there, we have some information. Obviously, the information isn't entirely accurate about the vivacia, which makes Kenneth, with his trader background, extremely suspicious of the accuracy of that information because he knows Haven is not an old trader family. So they for, therefore, they would not have a live ship.
1: Um, the information is all correct. It just, the way it's said isn't. The only thing no. that isn't correct is calling it a Haven, the name of the. Yeah, exactly. Family.
0: That is like the key information that sparks him being like, this isn't correct then because that well, is not a trader family.
1: I mean, the key thing is them saying that it's a slave, going to be fitted as a slave ship.
0: Well, right. But that's the second thing. Yeah. That's also like, that's not a traitor family. So wrong information. Right. But he is also disgusted by using a live ship as a slave ship,
1: which is odd because he doesn't seem to have a problem with slaves in general. I don't know what his deal is with that
0: because he was bonded to a live ship and he knows the depth of emotion and the feeling that they get from the crew. Mm. He has intimate knowledge of what that would do to a live ship. And he is disgusted by slave ships in general.
1: But even that, I mean, I don't know. I know that like he wouldn't want his live ship to go through that again, but, or go through that in general, but it feels odd for him to empathize with a ship more than he would a human. You know what I mean?
0: Why? The ship is the only thing that gave him comfort ever really, except for his mom, but he disdains his mom. (laughs) So,
1: I guess. Yeah. Good point.
0: The the live ship Paragon was pretty much the only thing there backing him up and helping him. And I think that's the only thing he cares for right now in the world. Although we both agree that there's some small feeling for Etta in the back of his mind, covered up by all of his misogyny and weird equality.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I don't know, but I do feel bad for Etta because she did a really good job and she did get good information. I think it's interesting that the slavers wouldn't know the name, the actual name of the live ship trading family the Vivacia belonged to. I feel like it's mostly strange to me because it feels like Althea's dad was such a big fig- figure and was... Kind of famous. Maybe not. Maybe it's just we feel like that because we're from Althea's point of view whenever we hear about him. And so so, yeah. He's larger than life because it's her memory of him. And I guess when would he have ever hung out around slave ships? Never. So they and I mean, I'm sure slavers don't usually interact with Bingtown people or their merchants, yeah. So maybe they wouldn't know.
0: This ship has been a slaver for a while. It was described in the previous chapter with Kenneth. Yeah. So
1: I don't know. No I, it, I don't know.
0: But they would go by the captain's name. And if they yeah. have the last name of Haven.
1: Which also, how did they know it was Captain Haven's ship if Torg is the one pretending to be in charge?
0: <laughs> well, they, they said that there is a man, Edda says that there's a man named Torg who seems to be in charge of everything, but doesn't seem to be the captain. So, yeah, that's what the slavers know, because Torg is the one interacting in the slave market. That's fair. Kennett has to make her tractable again because she's because for some reason she's angry at his insinuation that she did a really poor job of torturing these people and getting information. He's like, no, you're all wrong. All the information you got is wrong and bad. So he has to think of some way, but he's just too tired and helpless and in pain to do anything about it. So he says, I'm helpless. I can't even get back into my bed alone, he said bitterly. In rare honesty, he declared, I hate for you to see me this way. Outside, the music changed. One strong man's voice took up a chant, at once forceful and tender. He cocked his head to make out the oddly familiar words. Ah, he said softly to himself, I know it now. From Kytris to his mistress, a lovely piece. He tried again to find a compliment to give her, and he couldn't think of any. "'You could go out on deck and listen to the music if you wished,' he offered her. "'It's quite an old poem, you know.' The edges of his vision wavered, his eyes watered with his pain. "'Have you heard it before?' he asked, trying to keep his voice steady. "'Oh, Kenneth! Suddenly and inexplicably contrite. Tears stood in her eyes as she came to him. "'It sounds more sweet to me here than anywhere else. "'I'm sorry, I'm such a heartless wench sometimes.' Look at you, white as a sheet. Let me help you lie down. He says, no, I'm too cold, I'm too cold, when she tries to sponge his face with cool water. And she covers him gently, the warmth of her body actually pleasant, laying alongside of him. And the lace of the front of her shirt scratched his face. Take your clothes off, he directed her. You're warmest when you're naked. She gave a short laugh, at once pleased and surprised. Such a man, she rebuked him, but she rose to obey him. Before I move on to the finishing of this chapter, the conclusion this is kenneth's inexplicable luck chiming in again right the charm re- like recites the poem from Kytris to his mistress in bed when kenneth is sleeping basically declaring his love for Etta and wrapping her around kenneth's finger and then it just happens to be playing by the musicians he just freed above and said yeah you can you can play you know <laughs> be gracious for uh, the lord true his saviors or whatever and it's the perfect thing to say while he's in pain with his voice wavering
1: and tears in his eyes
0: yeah being like I'm just so in pain and helpless <laughs> like please god let let this be nice for you to help me or to leave
1: <laughs> yeah
0: and it's the perfect thing to say because it's like oh have you heard it before this poem it's really old it's lovely and wonderful <laughs> And she's like, oh, my gosh, Kenneth, here in this bed, it means more than anything. <laughs> it's
1: it's so interesting because he, reading this from Kenneth's point of view, it's so callous and just clear that he does not know how to be a nice person or good in any way. But if you think about it from Edda's point of view, it is so sweet. I mean, you can read it like, oh, you know what? I've been harsh to you because I'm in pain. I didn't mean it. I just, I I don't know what to do. My whole life has changed and I need your help. I'm and lashing
0: out because I hate for you to see me this way.
1: Yes. And then also this poem slash song starts and he's like, oh, our song. Do you want to listen to it out there instead of with me here? Like, Ah! Uh, so frustrating because he doesn't deserve this luck. He does not deserve his love in any capacity and yet here she is thinking that's the most romantic man she's ever met.
0: <laughs> and so there's a knock at the door when he tells her to take her clothes off and lay next to him to warm him up and it's Sorcor being like, "I've brought you the prisoner, sir." And In his mind, it's like, oh, it's just too much trouble. He's just too tired. He's gone through too much already. Never mind, he said faintly. Etta already questioned him. I've no need of him anymore. She climbs into the bed carefully, easing her warmth up against him, and her skin was soft and warm, a balm. Captain Kennett. Sorkor's voice, was insistent, worried. Yes, he acknowledged. Sorkor jerks the door open. Behind him, two sailors held up what remained of the captain of the Cicerna, they met their captain's eyes and then both gaped at him in amazement. Edda turned his head to follow their gaze and beside him in bed, Edda was holding the blanket firm below her na- naked shoulders, just above the slight curve of her breasts. And the music from the deck came more loudly into the room. He turned his head back to the prisoner. Etta had more than blinded him. She had dismantled the man a bit at a time. Disgusting. He didn't want to look at that just now, but he had to keep up appearances. "'He cleared his throat. Edit over with. "'Prisoner, did you tell my woman the truth?' "'The wreckage between the two sailors lifted a ruined face towards his voice. "'I swear I did, over and over again. "'Why would I lie?' "'The man began to weep noisily. "'Please, good sir, don't let her at me no more. "'I told her the truth. "'I told her everything I knew.' "'It suddenly seemed like too much trouble. "'The man had obviously lied to Eda, and now he was lying to Kennet as well. "'The prisoner was useless.' The pain from his leg was banging against the inside of Kenneth's skull. I'm occupied. He did not want to admit how exhausted he was simply from taking a bath and getting dressed. Take care of him, Sorkor, however you see fit. The meaning of his words was plain, and the prisoner's voice rose in a howl of denial. Oh, and shut the door on your way out, Kennet further instructed him. Sar, he heard a deckhand sigh as the door closed behind them and the wailing prisoner. He's going at her already. Guess nothing keeps Captain Kennet down. And he just turns towards the warmth of Etta's body and his eyes close and sinks into a deep sleep. So again, we have Kennet with all appearances looking very good to Edda, and then turning around in the next instant and looking super good to his crew as well.
1: He looks so cool.
0: Yeah.
1: (laughs) Oh, my gosh. He's such a cool
0: man. Nothing can keep him down. Lose a leg and the next day. (laughs) Woo.
1: We don't even know. It's probably been more than a day. He's been passed out for several days. And the first thing he does is get his woman into bed. (laughs) So, (laughs) yuck. (laughs) But it works out for him. He doesn't care. And Etta obviously doesn't care that they're insinuating that. I'm sure she knows it looks good for him to be that way. And he just told her earlier that he has to be a disgusting pig as Captain Kennet. So maybe she was playing into that on purpose because she wants to help him create that image because she knows it's important to him. Which, (sighs) I don't know.
0: (laughs) We have Kennet at pretty much one of his lowest points. I mean, he goes a little bit further down, but in his mind, this is probably his lowest point. We know as a character he kind of dips lower yeah but here he's at his most helpless like you said and it's mere it mirrors what Wintrow is going through as well at his lowest point right
1: and it's interesting that this is under the chapter titled prisoner because clearly Kenneth is not a prisoner oh no I guess it would be more about the actual prisoner that they yeah, have for. Yeah. never mind
0: But, I mean, it can be interpreted if we're we're doing the whole, the author made this blue because it means sad. It's it's still a prisoner to Kenneth, right? He's talking Mm -hmm. about they're trapping me here. They're working against me. What is going on? I need to move. I need to get out. I need to take control of my life again. And he's feeling trapped. So I guess it could work for him a little bit as well.
1: Yeah. I don't know. I think it's a really good look into who Kenneth is in, I guess, the least gory way because (laughs) there, I mean, he himself in this chapter isn't actively hurting anybody physically or thinking about times when he like murdered or maimed or killed people. I guess killed is the same as murdered, but whatever. Um. Whenever he was hurting people to get power, this is more just a look at who he is as a person.
0: Yeah. And how in this moment his mind reacts to adversity.
1: Yeah. And you can kind of see the hints of, I guess, trauma if you're looking. And maybe if you don't know what he's gone through, it doesn't look like trauma. He's just callous. But I don't know. People don't just act like that. Right.
0: Right. (laughs) Uh, well, thank you so much for tuning in and listening to us this week. If you have thoughts about Wintro's indecision, his state of mind, his decision to play it cool in front of Torg, maybe he should have pled with the man. I don't know. Maybe he, he should, should have,
1: have st- sent word to his father the first yeah, day.
0: Of course he should have. But in this situation, if you have thoughts on what he did and how it played out, please let us know. Or if you uh, have thoughts about. How Edda's being manipulated by the charm and Kenneth, how she's kind of being roped in, or her attitude and callousness towards prisoners. Yeah. <laughs> Please email us at isfitshappy at gmail.com, or you can message us or comment on any of our posts on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. We're at isfitshappy at all three of those. And then we also have a YouTube channel where you can comment on any of the episodes. I'm slowly still uploading the backlog, and I think We're almost through, almost caught up. So all of those should be up there shortly. So thank you so much for tuning in.
1: Try not to maim anybody. (laughs) Okay, so we have a few things to talk about. I think this week is going to be more dragon focused, although there will be hints of some of the characters involved in the book series. To start off, I think we're going to have to talk about a mistake we made.
0: Not necessarily a mistake. Well,
1: something that we didn't know at the time.
0: But Amir messaged us on Instagram, um, made sure that we remembered and knew and pointed out that Vivacia actually was a one who remembers. There are more than one of them. So she who remembers is trapped in... Other Island, and vivasha was actually going to be one as well.
1: Right. And there are more than one. I think um, we realized after recording the podcast that vivasha used to be a one who remembers, and yeah. we had a conversation outside of the podcast about it. And I'm pretty sure it never made it back onto the podcast, <laughs> which does happen from time to time, where we, we try not to talk about it outside the podcast, so we don't do that. Yeah. But... Yeah, so it was good for somebody to write it in because it, then we remembered that, yes, we have not said that on the pod. Vivacia is one of She Who Remembers.
0: Yeah, and Amir does make mention of that they're probably for different generations. So it doesn't really state whether they believe that it is one per generation or whatever, but there might be one per generation. Because we had that whole conversation of how does their whole thing work?
1: <laughs> right. Um, which is really interesting and kind of transitions into a comment we got from the user Cookie Bowl, who said that they have a theory that the Tangles are just different generations and every single one has a one who can remember, and they have to stay in the South to get bigger to be able to traverse all the way across the globe. And the one who remembers in their pack knows when it's time. And they go at different times just based off when their pack is ready or seems ready. And there probably was a point where they had dragons that, like, helped them get to the mouth of the river. Mm -hmm. But that would have kind of been.
0: Well, the cataclysm kind of changed everything there.
1: Right. So there probably were outside factors as well. Changing things and. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Definitely.
1: I think it's all also interesting and cookie ball also points out that humans were probably a really big factor in helping this situation or at least elderlings. Yes. Elderlings, I suppose. Um, and how it would help the dragons or serpents become dragons because they're the ones who mind skill or at least the silver that, we associate with skill.
0: Yeah. How the dragons would kind of make elderlings and help them settle in areas that had silver infused sands or strong silver where they could build wells, that sort of thing.
1: Right. And so I think it's really interesting to think about the dragons in that way and that they also bring up dragons probably evolved because the silver wasn't easily accessible always. So, The silver obviously makes them more whole and they posit that it makes them easier to communicate with in a human way and makes it easier for them to be able to pass on their past life knowledge. And maybe they didn't always have that. That was something that, you know, another reason for them to get the lowly human cattle quote unquote to do what they wanted.
0: Right. And we had an email actually that kind of links to that a little bit. Uh, Basically stating from Jonas here that their tinfoil hat theory is that the very, very, very early dragons kind of helped evolve the humans Mm -hmm. to have somebody to worship and praise. And they probably didn't think that they needed help, but since they were so solitary, but also so prideful that it kind of, hey, I need some people who love me. (laughs) Right. (laughs) These people will work. I'll make them more civilized.
1: Yeah. 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 So very interesting thoughts about dragons and where they came from and how humans were affected by them.
0: Yeah, definitely. I think
1: that's something that we don't, we haven't spent a ton of time thinking about and especially the whole silver debacle and (laughs) what it means. But speaking of silver and silver being a pure skill, Gonna hop in, use that to hop into a topic about the skill. And Cookie Bowl also had a comment about how they always viewed Saw as the skill river.
0: It could be like, yeah, that, that sense of connectedness. There's a lot of links between using the skill and Saw. Right. And how they can see how a group of philosophers examining the skill without jumping into the skill river just meditating and contemplating it could come up with great and complicated philosophy that keeps on having more and more additions to it until it becomes the many precepts and contradictions of saw. So it, yeah, if there were old skill users, cookie bowl says, and they were just kind of looking at the mysteries of the world and, and saw this connected river that encompassed a lot of things. And there were just voices coming out of it. The many faces of saw, like, the beach in the next series, where Dutiful hears a a father's voice, and Fitz hears a mother's voice from great beings in this Skill River. There's different things, and that could possibly be where the start of this religion comes from.
1: Yeah, and I thought it was really interesting because Cookie Bowl also specifically says that this would is more likely to have happened because it what Skill isn't used as something for war in this society, unlike Buckkeep. And because Buckkeep is more using skill as something that is a weapon, of course, they're not going to look at it from an arts point of view or a philosophy point of view because they know it as a weapon and it keeps people safe. So there's no need to look into it any further. And And it was
0: kind of, you know, this isn't in Cookie Bowl's comments, but in Jamalia, it was... Widely used in, at least as we know, skill is widely used in the priesthood. Yeah. And it's very celebrated there. Obviously, this is not, the satrapy is not an extremely, extremely old place. It has a ton of history, but we know that, you know, Jamalia is burned down Maybe things weren't always this way, but at least currently it is widely spread. And in the six duchies, it is the king's magic.
1: Right. And there would be no way to know that there's any overlap because I think in the six duchies, it's much more guarded as a secret. Right. And I guess it hasn't always been that way, but it has always kind of been an elite thing. I don't think I mean, obviously, they would do the skill calls and anybody who answered could come. And that didn't necessarily mean that it was a noble person coming forward, but I think it still was very secretive when you were trained in that. It wasn't something that you learned and then told other people about. It was something that you studied and then people just knew you as someone who could use the skill, but they don't know what that means. So I thought that was a really interesting take to say that maybe because the cultures viewed the skill differently, it led them to different beliefs and belief systems and gave them different ways of looking at it. And so of course they have different outcomes. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was a really interesting way to look at it.
0: Definitely. So thank you for those comments.
1: Yes. And then finally we have some conversation about rain in Malta.
0: Yeah. uh, We have one comment from about kind of the, the most recent dream sequence from Cookie Bowl, probably uh, discussing what we were talking about, like the last kind of section there where, wow, you're such a warm person, Malta, them connecting on some sort of level. Right. And Malta's, <laughs> her antiquated and archaic view of romance. We are having that whole discussion there and Cookie Bowl is commenting, seeing that Malta is often in her own head with a great imagination coming up with stories and reasoning and we often see that manifesting in real life as some sort of delusions to lead to her own beliefs like this wasn't Rain this was Sirwin giving her the dream box and that's actually much more likely you know right she has all of these sorts of this sort of imagination that's coming to life in this dream box here and Cookie Bowl sees that Rain is kind of the opposite with a scholar, more of a recluse, much more reserved, but seeing that vibrancy and that life and light makes him kind of want that, and they're kind of paired up well together, and sees that Malta's imagination might bring that out in him, and that life out of him. They say that the immature version of her character is so self-obsessed because she wants to feel important, which is a little bit more cynical. But I, I do like the first part of Cookie Bowl's comment here, thinking that like they are a good pair that way. They have kind of fit together, and that's what Rain sees in her, and that's how oh you're so, such a warm person and full of of life, Malta. You know, I, we'll we'll dance well together. Yeah. Whatever. But at the same time, I do agree with that last sentence because I've been ragging on Malta this whole time about her being way too immature and her being self-obsessed with things. And I just think those qualities just happen to fit with what Rain's vision of this was as well. Right. Just kind of fit together.
1: Yeah. I think to be fair, I don't think it's very cynical to say that she wants to be important. I think that's something everybody wants.
0: That's fair. That's definitely fair.
1: Especially as a kid, when you don't realize that you're not the main character, like, of course, you want to be the main character of every story (laughs) and you want to be the one that is going to overcome all the troubles. And of course, you're going to want to make life more fantastical. That's what you do when you're a kid. And so I think that's a really interesting point of view of just, yeah, she's just excited. She has a big imagination and will for life That is different than something Rain has experienced before. Mm -hmm. Still gross to me, but, you know, (laughs) can't win them all.
0: (laughs) And lastly, we do have a comment from Jonas's email as well about Rain and Malta. But this is specifically about when they met at the trader function, that gathering, when they were outside by the carriage. Yes. And our interpretation of the wine glass scene specifically, we kind of said that or at least hinted at, I think it might have been me. As when she handed the wine glass over and said, like, hey, hold this, you can have it if you want. And he responds, oh, may I? And, you know, drains it and takes it away as if she was, as if he interpreted that as Malta offering it a gift. But Jonas has a slightly different interpretation, which I actually kind of agree with looking back at it, but it makes Rain seem more predatory to read it this way is that he understood the situation and was amused by her thinking that he was just a coachman or not a trader, or this was, you know, not anything important. So he was like laughing at the situation like, Oh, may I take this? Why? Thank you so much for your wine glass. Very sarcastic. Like, which I thought was a very interesting interpretation. I do like it. And I think it fits more of a human scenario. Because it's not so ingrained in a made up society rules of courting that we don't know.
1: (laughs) Right. I, I still, I don't know. I still think it's probably more likely that he thought it was. She's dressed like a woman. The women would have been taught about customs like this. So I think it makes sense that he thinks that she's giving a gift, especially with how flustered she gets. I can see it as both. I like a
0: little bit like him, him being amused, like, oh, really, may I take this half drinking glass of wine? That's great. And then with her getting flustered, he takes it as a more serious gift kind of thing.
1: Right. Yeah. No, I think it is like kind of a like really half of your wine. Cool. (laughs) But yeah, I don't know. It's really hard to tell, I guess. I, I like the different interpretation, though. It's interesting to read it in that way.
0: Yeah, definitely. Well, thank you so much for those comments, too. And with regards to malta and and rain again i want to make this clear i'll try to be more charitable with them going forward we we talk and complain about them so much it's just so easy to complain about them though
1: yeah i think <laughs> i think what's hard about this series and hard to be more forgiving is because i don't like any of these characters i i mean i like parts of them and the characters i do like I like a lot, but the characters I like, we aren't in the heads of. So yeah, I like find it harder to be generous with these characters. I'm, I'm trying really hard. And I, again, with like Malta, she's a child. Wintro, he's a child. Like,
0: yeah, they're literal
1: children. Althea is barely an adult. It's, it's hard to keep that in mind and remember that in why they make the choices they do. And like. I definitely am going to try to work to be a little bit more positive in the way that we talk about the book going forward, but it's one of those things that it's, it like you said, it's just easier to be negative Nellies about it just because, <laughs> oh my gosh, the choices these characters make. Uh, that's all right though. But Yeah, but you know. So thank you to everyone who wrote in. We enjoy hearing from you guys every week and seeing your point of view.